Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. And our scripture this morning comes from Luke 9, 43 through 50. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you're visiting here, my name's uh, Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We are so glad you're here with us, and it's good to be back with you all. This week, I read a story, a short story by Flannery O'Connor. I don't know if you know who that is. She was a very famous kind of mid-20th century Southern Gothic writer is what she called. She wrote these very um, disturbing, often kind of even grotesque stories that deal with morality and faith and kind of... uh, human Southern culture especially. And the last story she wrote was called Revelation. She wrote it from her hospital bed. It was published after her death. And it's considered to be one of her finest. And what happens in the story is that we meet this woman, Mrs. Ruby Turpin, who is kind of a grotesque person. And she is, though, very confident in her own standing before God, very confident in her own place in society, and her whole mode, you kind of get, you hear some of her words as well as a lot of her internal thoughts. She goes into this waiting room, this doctor's waiting room is very crowded, and it becomes a scene that really represents how she lives her life. She's constantly categorizing everyone. She's constantly looking at everyone, looking at their shoes, look at how they're dressed, look how they talk. And she's very confident that she understands who they really are because she can categorize them into these different groups, label them, identify them as white trash or of a certain ethnicity or um, a lunatic even. And so what happens in the story is that she's going through this, we're seeing this about her, and she is judging everyone and even in a way that is very reminiscent of the famous story from Luke 18, where the Pharisee is looking down on the tax collector. She even thanks God, thank you, God, that I am not like these other people, she says. And then she gets hit in the head with a book. There's a girl sitting that she's been judging who kind of loses it and throws this book on human development and hits her square in the eyes and then jumps on her and starts choking her. This is a classic Flannery O'Connor kind of story if you've ever read her. 
And, you know, it's a short story. Basically what happens is it's a very chaotic scene. When she, when Ruby and her husband get back to their pig farm, she's there reflecting on these things. She's other interactions she has with people. She's yelling at God. She's yelling at others. And all of a sudden she has this vision. She's standing before God. And she sees this procession of everyone entering into heaven. And all the groups of people that she has judged the lunatics, people of different ethnicities, people that aren't attractive, white trash, they're all way ahead of her in the line entering into heaven. And that's how the story ends. It's very powerful. And there are a lot of things we could draw from this, but I think one of them, maybe one I would just pull out, is that this story represents something that is true we see in the Bible and true in our lives as well, and that is that we all categorize people, we all put people, we slot people into, into people that are you know, better than us or lower than us. And if you're sitting there thinking that I don't really do that much, but you can think of someone who is, then guess what? You're doing that right now. <laughs> but what we see in the Bible is that and what we see in the story is that often, probably more often than not, we don't really see ourselves clearly, and we also don't really see clearly what God values. And this is a problem. And it's why we actually, on Sunday mornings, gather together, and it's why we open the Bible on Sunday mornings and in other days as well, because we need God's help to enable us to see ourselves clearly and to see what God really values. Because on our own, it's hidden from us often, and everything in us fights against that. We rarely see ourselves clearly. Just like Mrs. Turpin, we actually need God to reveal himself so that we can have our blind eyes opened and our clogged ears opened as well. And so today, after spending a summer in Exodus, we are coming back to Luke, which we were in some months before that. And we will be in Luke, we're picking up back in chapter 9, and we will be in Luke all the way to Advent, um, right, the four weeks before Christmas. And I don't know that there's any place better than the Gospels for us to see who we are clearly, and most importantly, see what God really values and how those are often not <laughs> matched up. And the verses are very short. There's actually three little stories in these verses, and they don't even seem to really be connected together at first, but I want to show you they are connected together, and they really are on this, and I'm hoping we'll all have a, a, an MTM, a Mrs. Turpin moment today, that God would maybe reveal himself to us and help us see who we are in his presence. So there are three little stories. They're in Luke chapter 9, Lindsay read them for us. You want to open in a Bible, that would be great. You can look along with me. You can pull it up in your phone as well. We'll put some of the verses on the screen. But we're going to look at these three little parts of the story. And the first one we can call, starting in chapter 9, verses 43 to 45, the son of man's suffering. Let's read these verses again. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. 
Obviously, we're picking up a story that's been going on for nine chapters already. And what we've seen, you could go back and look at it in Luke chapters 1 to 8 and all the way up through here, is that Jesus has been doing truly amazing things. Casting demons out of people, healing people, feeding multitudes miraculously, showing compassion, teaching, giving an insight into who God is and what his kingdom is like that no one could even imagine how powerful it was. Healing blindness, raising people from the dead. These are all things we've seen just in these nine chapters, even some of them got to see him transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration in all his glory. And so the response here that we just saw in verse 43 is the same that we would have. They were, everyone was amazed at the greatness of God. And then, oddly, unexpectedly, Jesus says about himself, and that son of man is the way that Jesus almost always refers to himself. He says the son of man is going to lose He's going to be betrayed and captured. And actually, just a few verses earlier in chapter 9, verse 22, he had told them this already, that he's going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified even, and then rise from the dead. But they couldn't make any sense of it. Because just imagine their situation. Everything Jesus is doing has been powerful and amazing. Nobody's seen anything like it. All these miracles and all the goodness coming. And then for him to say, and actually, I'm about to lose everything. They can't even compute. I, I, the only analogy, I couldn't come up with a great analogy, would be like if you had this, a dear friend who was just like so talented and so hardworking, he did everything with integrity and, and they've worked hard and they finally were offered the CEO position and they're gonna get, you know they're gonna do great works and they deserve it and, and they're humble about it and everything. And then they say, you know what? I'm going to be the one instead who cleans the toilets at the prison with a toothbrush. In fact, I'm gonna become a prisoner myself. It would just not even compute. And even that doesn't really account for it. I mean, I, I can't think of a better way to just think that the shock of it, it doesn't make any sense to them at all. And so if you look at verse 45 there, you can see the disciples can't even understand what he's saying. That's why he says in verse 44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. I like how the ESV says it. Let this sink into your ears because they can't understand. If you look at verse 45, it says, and it was hidden from them. Like, they couldn't even understand it. What does that mean? Well, I think it means partly that just their human limits and their, just, it, it, they just can't even make sense of how this could be. These things, this great wonder-working Jesus is going to lose everything. And I think there's also a mystery here in the fact that what the Bible teaches regularly is that God has to reveal himself to us. We can't work our way to understanding him. He really has to open our eyes, and he's not obligated to do so. And so in this moment, they cannot understand what in the world Jesus is saying. And that leads to our second story that is connected. Look at verses 46 and following. We can call this, who is the greatest, really? Now, back in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, my wife and I lived in the Chicago area. area and in those days, even though I happily confess I don't know much about basketball even, even now, but I'm quite biased to say that the greatest of all time, the GOAT, was Michael Jordan. Can I get a witness? I don't know. It's kind of a generational thing. For some of you, it might be LeBron, some of you, other people, whoever, it doesn't matter, Kobe, whatever. But that's what it was for me, for my experience. And everybody has a different opinion. Maybe if you took music, who's the greatest musician? Some of you might say Elvis. Some of you might say the Beatles. Some of you, hopefully, might say Taylor Swift. Some of you might say Roadkill. My band from the, 
from 84 to 85 that was horrible. Uh, thankfully, there's no witness of that anywhere. It was a pre-digital age. Whoever it is for you, or whatever other category, maybe some of you are Sam's Club people, some of you are Costco people, don't even get me started. I could just tell you what the right answer is there. It's definitely Costco. So, but whatever it is, whatever the issue is, we all have in our minds what's, who's the goat and what's the best thing, what's the greatest thing of all time. And whatever the topic is and whatever, whoever we think it is, it's going to be based on a perceived awesomeness, a perceived skill, a perceived value that we can all agree that's really good. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 46. So an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Jesus' disciples, they're not high-class, high-brow, high-educated, high-power people at all. They really are coming from the sticks up in Galilee in the north, and they aren't really, for the most part, educated people or have any sort of status in society. They're certainly not connected with Jerusalem and the Pharisees, etc. So why in the world would they be debating, debating among themselves who's the greatest? Well, you need to think about their situation here. They were nobodies. And now, through no, you know, no control of their own, they have been called and invited into following this person who is obviously more than a human. He's walking on water. He's feeding people miraculously. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. I mean, this is amazing. Everybody says this is amazing. And not only do they get to follow him, they're on the inner circle. They're part of the 12, right? And just like you and me, in anything when things get going well, even if our origins were humble, we cannot help but to have our ambition start to get in there. And this is exactly what happens with them. They're debating among themselves who the, who the greatest is. It's such a true and sad human habit. I think I've shared this illustration with you before. I need to again because it just happened to me again. So I fly a lot. I was on four planes this week. Some of you fly more than me, me, I do as well. But I travel quite a bit now. And with my Delta credit card and all my I always fly Delta, I get upgraded a lot now. And it's a pretty nice life, right? And Delta has three levels. There's main cabin, and then there's Delta Comfort Plus, which is what I usually fly. But now that I fly so much, I get upgraded to first class probably about half the time now. And so just this week, I flew first class twice. And it's really nice. And what I see in myself is just so sad and so <laughs> embarrassing is that if I'm flying Comfort Plus, and then I get upgraded to, to first class, and then on another flight, I'm back in Comfort Plus, it's like a deep stab in my heart. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm a first class man, aren't I? And when I'm standing there with my Comfort Plus ticket or on my app, and I'm seeing all the first class, first class seating, thank you, it just hurts my heart. And I'm thinking, I'm just a humble Midwestern boy. I don't deserve any of this. And of course, I'm looking down on those main cap, main cap, what? Is that where they like they carry the chickens back there? What's going on? I don't even know back there. 
And it's just so crazy. And last year, I remember I had to change flights quickly and I had to find main cabin and I felt like I was like being wounded and offended or something, right? And I just think, what is going on? Like, this is just so ridiculous in my heart to just feel like now that I've gotten this like granted privilege that somehow I deserve that, I'm like a better person, but it happens. It happens to all of us. And this is one of the greatest dangers of money. This is why the Bible talks about money all the time. As one of my mentors always used to say, anyone who thinks that money doesn't affect them is like the alcoholic thinking they can take just one more drink. And we see it all the time. And this is exactly what we see with the disciples here. They are called by God, and now all they can think about is which one of them among the 12 is the greatest. Of course, they're greater than all those other main cabin disciples. And I also don't want you to miss the power of the scene here. Because Jesus has just told his disciples twice that he, their Lord, their wonder-working man of God, God himself, that he's going to be arrested and suffer, be betrayed and die. And then immediately after, the next verse, they're squabbling about which one of them is the greatest. Do you feel the juxtaposition? You, could feel that you should feel like the heavy metal clang on a hard floor of that in our souls. That this is... This, this juxtaposition, this smashing together of these two different values, they are completely preoccupied with themselves when he's just told them he is going to suffer and die and all they can think about is which of them is the greatest. Do you feel it? We're meant to feel this like screeching breaks of that in our souls. It'd be like if someone was sharing with you or me of a horrible accident or a struggle they're in and then you're like, oh, that's fine, but... I cannot figure out which color of paint to use in the foyer of my beach house. This is what's going on with disciples. Read the room, boys. <laughs> I love how one commentator translates 947, though. Jesus knew the calculations of their hearts. That's a great translation. And knowing the calculations of their hearts and our hearts, he doesn't blow up on them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't humiliate them or berate them. Instead, what he does is he warmly takes this child who's nearby, puts the child in front of them, and says, whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, the Father. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest." You've probably heard that story, and maybe you have that picture from Sunday school or something, but this is not just like some sentimental image that, oh, that's nice, Jesus likes children, and he you know, is all for sojourn kids or something. He does love children, but the point of this story is not sentimentalism, but to recognize that a child represents here someone who has, especially in the ancient world, no power, no status, no control, no honor, they don't have anything to offer in the same way that an adult would, especially in these ancient cultures. And this is meant to challenge their pretensions and to give them this sharp contrast to what they're squabbling about, who's the greatest. And this is like such a powerful image. And if, the image I'd like you to have is not just a Sunday school image, but this image of this wonder-working, powerful man who is a prophet and God incarnate that they all see. And then he puts this child next to them and he says, you think you want to follow me? 
this is, this is the kind of way to follow me. That one who receives this kind of person who has no power and nothing to offer them, those are the ones who are actually receiving me. And I am sure the disciples did not remember or did not forget that powerful, you know, physical image. And the point is clear that Jesus shows his disciples that we need an entirely different calculus, an entirely different way to figure out who is the goat among us. We need to figure out, we need a new way of figuring out that what we think is greatness is not what God thinks as greatness. It's humility and no pretense. So that's powerful. It's hard to know what to do with that exactly. Then look at the third story, and this is maybe the oddest of them. This is a, a story that's unique here, and it's very short. You may have never even thought about it because it's just two verses. It's in chapter 9, verses 49 to 50. Right on the cusp of this, verse 49 reads, Master, said John, one of the three special disciples, even among the twelve. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now, this is kind of a weird story. And we really don't know much about it. Like, we don't know who these people were who were casting out demons in Jesus' name. We do know that Jesus' reputation was going before him and that other Jewish exorcists tried to do this. If you read in the book of Acts, those of us who are going through men's and women's Bible study in Acts, we'll get to this eventually. You have several stories where people see the power of Jesus and the apostles and they want a piece of it, right? Simon Magus even tries to pay for it. And you have other people who try to cast out demons in Jesus' name. But apparently this is not that situation. These seem, people seem to actually be doing it in Jesus' name legitimately, not for, not for selfish gain. We don't know who these people were. Maybe it was the guy back from chapter 8, the Gerasene demoniac who has experienced Jesus casting out demons and he's believed and maybe God's using him. We do know that this wasn't something that only Jesus himself did. At the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12 to preach the gospel, heal people, cast out demons. So this is something that Jesus was, by the power of the Spirit, enabling other people to do as well. Chapter 10, right after this, we're going to read that Jesus sends out 72 people in pairs to do the same thing. So this isn't necessarily a bad thing happening what, but who it was doesn't matter. What matters is how the disciples respond to this and then what Jesus says in response to them. John, who we don't see you know, step up very often, but he's one of the, the three inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the inner circle. John steps up and says, you know, what, we need to stop this because probably he's trying to protect Jesus' brand, I guess, a bit. But I think even more, it shows this same human tendency towards competitiveness, to making sure we get the credit and that we get the honor and that all things are done in the ways that we think they should be done. And again, this is a, a deeply human issue, including for Christian humans, this sort of tendency towards divisiveness. And if you think about it, for the disciples, I think what was energizing this was actually something pretty powerful called shame. If you were to look back in chapter 9, 
You'll see that in the beginning, Jesus sent them out with great power and great success, and they're riding high on that. In 9, 28 to 36, Peter, James, and John, one of these three, they get special VIP access onto the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus glorified. And then right after that, the story right before ours, what happens is Jesus comes down from the mountain and the disciples fail to cast out a demon from this boy. They fail. They're, supposed, they're riding high, and then they encountered this situation, and maybe they were getting a little self-confident. We don't know why exactly, but they, they fail right in front of everyone. They're the special 12, and now they're supposed to cast out this demon, and they can't do it. And Jesus has to come in and rescue them. I'm sure they were feeling a ton of shame and a ton of fear. And then they hear there's some other people doing this, and you can imagine John and the others are like, whoa, 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 hold on. Wait, we cannot let other people be doing this. We're the ones. We're the first-class disciples, Right? And so they attack. They try to stop them and they can't. Now, what do you think Jesus would say if we hadn't read that already? What he says is, don't stop them. Who is not against us is for us. And I think how we can take that is that Jesus is saying, God is doing his kingdom work through people other than us and other than our particular vision. I mean, not other than Jesus's, but other than the 12. And we don't have a monopoly, he's saying to you disciples, you don't have a monopoly on whom God uses, and we don't need to try to control that. If they're really doing it in Jesus' name, and they really are filled with the same Holy Spirit that are doing this, which seems to be the case, shockingly, the 12 don't get to control all of that. It's interesting that John's question here is almost certainly intentionally mimicking a story that happened back in Moses and Joshua's day in, in Numbers 11, a similar things hap similar things hap happens. Moses appoints all these elders, and then Joshua learns that there are a couple of people that are outside of that appointed amount who are actually doing some good. And he goes to Moses and says, "Hey, we need to stop this, right?" And Moses gives this great response. He says, "Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets." and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. It also reminds me of a really weird text in Philippians 1. The Apostle Paul, who is preaching the gospel and giving his life in this, he's been put in prison wrongly for preaching the gospel. And it turns out some other people in the early Christian church were happy about that. They were happy that Paul was put in prison because they were probably jealous and also they didn't like his theology. They thought he was maybe too libertine and too gracious to the Gentiles and, and was eating pork sandwiches. And they thought he was dishonoring God. And I think there was probably jealousy and ambition among them. And so he's put in prison and they're probably happy. And you know, Influence, I mean, uh, criticism is the, is the price we pay for influence, always. And there are people that are really opposed to Paul. And so he's in prison. And instead of, you know, they're rejoicing that he's been kind of muted, they think. He could have been bitter. 
He could have been angry. He could have been jealous. He could have written, a, we could have another letter called To the Jerks or something where he like writes this letter, oh you, oh, you guys are opposing me? Well, in your face or something. Instead, listen what he says. Let me read you these verses from Philippians 1. He says to his friends, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition and envy, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. How's Paul going to respond to that? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. <laughs> wow. So even people that are doing something to spite him, because God in the providence uses that in a weird way for good, not only for Paul, but for others, Paul has this amazing ability, what I would call the freedom that comes from humility. The freedom that comes from recognizing people can jab at him, but he doesn't have to care. He doesn't have to be upset about that because he realizes there's something bigger than himself going on. God is doing good in the world. And so he's free. He's free. He can just say whatever they do, if Christ is proclaimed, that's okay. That's hard to do. But it's beautiful when you see it. I was in Oklahoma Sunday to Wednesday out at a church that connected with out there, very sister church, wonderful people. Um, and part of what they do, they give 40% of their budget to missions. <laughs> it's amazing. And they're very connected with a lot of missionaries. And one of the things they do every Tuesday, the leadership, they, do, they zoom in with some pastors in Nepal and India just to encourage them. And so I was there, so I got on the Zoom call with them and we're just talking with them. And, and Pastor Solomon, who's a very faithful man who is deeply involved in all kinds of missions work and evangelism and church planting all throughout India and suffers much for it at his own cost, we were talking about this text, and I just wanted to kind of get their opinion on it. And he said this, he said, um, and this is a man who suffers greatly. I mean, we, don't, we can't even imagine all the suffering they go through. And he, he said, I used to be upset and jealous when others succeeded in ministry, but then I realized I was focusing on being an I more than a we. When I care for others' well-being, that shows my motives in my ministry, and it shows my relationship with God. <laughs> that is very powerful. That's a good word. And this isn't just for people in ministry. This is for every aspect of our lives that with that Mrs. Turpin-like spirit of judging others rises up in us. So do you see how all these stories now fit together? Jesus has told us that he is going to suffer. And then the two responses of the disciples, which are our responses as well, are who's the greatest and we need to stop people that aren't doing it our way. And you're supposed to feel that way in which we represent the disciples and how different that is, how differently we see ourselves and the world 
than how God himself does. This obsessive concern that most of us have, and all of us to some degree, with our own place, our own position, our own status, our own power to make sure we get credit for everything. And so to bring this together, I just want to ask you, as I've been asking myself this week, and I've thought of plenty of ways this is true of me, what about you? Can you slow down? Can you humble yourself enough to identify some area, some situation, some relationship where you're feeling and acting the way the disciples did? I certainly can, in my own soul. Jealousy, ambitious competition with maybe some elbows flying, whatever it is for you, need to be in control, need to be in charge of what's going on, a drive to get the credit and let others, not let others outshine you, overly critical of those who are doing well. Those are very natural human values, but they are not kingdom virtues. And friends, to the degree in which we live in those ways is the degree which we will never be happy. There's no life there. Those ways of living do not give life. And that's why we open the scriptures. That's why we humbly listen and let God reshape our values and our sensibilities. And to press this further, it's good to ask, why do the disciples respond that way? And why do we respond that way? What's underneath that? And I think underneath jealousy and conflict and suspicions from others and a competitive spirit, underneath that is actually insecurity. Underneath that is a scarcity of soul mindset. Underneath that is a fear that we are not loved and that we're not safe and that we're not secure. Something that is in every one of us as part of being broken people and in some of us it's very deep. Under every sin and under every disappointment is a good and holy desire. And the good and holy desire that we're made for is safety and security and being loved. And when we don't experience that and we don't realize it, the way it manifests is in the way the disciples are being pictured and us as well. And I thought of one more text I wanted to read for you, James 4. I think he's probably thinking about this story, to be honest with you, when he, says, when he writes these words. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill, at least with words and looks. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So what do you do when you see these things coming up in your heart and life? You seek the Lord. You seek the Lord and ask him for what you need. God is inviting you and welcoming you to find the security, the sense of safety, not in your circumstances, not in being in control, but in him. Because the degree that we are seeking honor, honor and preeminence and security from other people and from our circumstances, to that degree, we will never be content. And we will, that will lead us into conflict and squabbling and the unsatisfying life that is not good for us or others. 
There is so much freedom in not having to win. So much freedom. There is so much freedom of soul in seeking to find your satisfaction and your security and your identity, not in relationship to other people, but in your relationship with God in Christ. And Jesus' willingness to suffer and sacrifice himself becomes a model of how to find life as well. Wrangling, quarreling, competing, needing to protect our own turf, it's a fool's errand. It's fool's gold that does not satisfy and does not last. Now, I'm not planning on throwing my Bible at your head, but I do want for yourself and for myself a moment of revelation from God to see ourselves clearly and to see what God values and to know that even though it's counterintuitive, His ways are beautiful and sweet and good. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.